1: Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I have ji Hong Padma on the show. ji Hong has combined an academic career with her, her vocation as a spiritual teacher, Ji-Hung served as Director of Spirituality and Education, as well as a Buddhist chaplain at Wellesley College for 14 years. Additionally, she has served as a meditation teacher at Harvard University, Boston University, Babson College, and Omega Institute. ji Padma is the author of the new book, Field of Blessings. Field of Blessings is a turning point of a, a revival. Revitalization of the healing arts in Western culture. Reclaim Reca- the power of ritual healing and reconnect with the roots of mind body medicine. Welcome. Thank you so much. Absolutely my pleasure. Hi, everybody. I just wanted to thank you all for your continuing support of the show and for passing forward my podcast. My podcast has grown only because of my listeners. So I just want to give you a moment to tell you how much I appreciate you and what you have done for me to help me grow. And I'm excited to say that I am now a featured creator on Fireside. Fireside is an app that allows the audience to be part of the process. So I will be hosting shows over on Fireside where you can listen live to the show. You can also ask questions of the guests. If you find me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins, you can link to my Fireside bio there and you'll be able to download the app through that. Also, if you haven't subscribed to my newsletter yet, please do so at dramyrobins.com. I'm going to be switching to bi-weekly newsletters, so you won't be getting them weekly anymore, but you will be getting bi-weekly newsletters with my soul wisdom and other fun tidbits that I'm going to bring to you all. So go ahead, follow me on Instagram, Find me on Fireside. You will also still be able to hear your podcasts as you are used to listening to them on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. But Fireside gives you the opportunity to listen live with me. So I would love to have you come join me over there. DM me if you have any questions. And thanks again for your continued support. So... First of all, can you tell me a little bit about the premise of the book before we get into more, more of my specific questions?
2: Sure. Well, the premise is basically that uh, Buddhism was one of the, the first psychologies. And out of that, people gained some good insight into the way that the mind and body work together and a ways in which that can support our healing uh, on all the levels, spiritually, physically, um, socially. And in, in the process of uh, Buddhism traveling to uh, China and Korea and other countries, actually it was the Buddhist monks gifts for doing healing work that very often opened the door to the royal court or you know, to the acceptance of Buddhism by the people. Now, um, as Buddhism has come to the West, uh, quite naturally, the pioneers have focused on um, meditation, you know, which, the ultimate goal of liberation. But at the same time, Buddhism throughout its history has always worked on all, both the um, relative and the, and the absolute levels. And so what I've done uh, in speaking with Buddhist healers is to reclaim some of that um, those resources. You know, we have uh, mindfulness, which is being used for mind-body healing, but that's just the, the tip of the iceberg.
1: Right. So you talk about mindfulness-based stress reduction, yeah. which is, I think that the probably form of meditation that people are most familiar with, John Kabat-Zinn sort of brought it here. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you talk about what healing looks like through the Buddhist lens and this mutual, I'm going to have a hard time saying this. <laughs> mutu- <laughs> Why can I not say this? Mutali- Mutality. Mutu- I'll I'll let you say it for me. Between consciousness, mutuality. Okay. Thank you. Between consciousness and body. Yeah.
2: Um. Well, From the very beginning, you know, which in the polycanon, the um, consciousness and the body are referred to um, as resting upon each other, like the two sheaves of green, you know, so that if you had these, um, you know, this one um, bound up pile of green and the other one, you might lean them up against each other so that they didn't fall to the ground and get um, mildewy. Hmm. So in that way. Um, the consciousness is resting upon the body and the body upon the consciousness. If we don't have a body, then we don't have, you know, the experiences um, that we know. But at the same time, consciousness is um, something that it is, it, it, while it's created together with the body, it also um, has its own um, stream of continuing, continuing energy. And so we understand um, that, you know, we need this kind of indwelling body, you know, to know things the way that we do, but also the body needs that light of consciousness. And it is being energetically informed by consciousness. And so we know this very much in modern science through the endocrine system. You know, the endocrine glands are located at the places that we know to be the, the Ashabra centers, actually. And so they're serving uh-huh. as space between um, the physical world and what we're taking in through what in Buddhism we call the rupasandhas, you know the um, the you know the sensory perceptions, and at the same time, the um, the the body is making meaning, you know, the, of of those sensory expressions experiences so we have you know we see something we see an old friend right and then um you know there are certain um things that are, are released you know that that kind of um tend and befriend of our oxytocin is, is released mm-hmm. or if it's someone else maybe we see our um high school algebra teacher and maybe we have a fight or flight response if we didn't enjoy algebra mm-hmm So then that sets off the um, hypothalamus uh, pituitary adrenal axis uh, and which basically sets into motion our fight or flight response. The heartbeat becomes more fast. The pulse is more rapid. The energy flows from the the inner organs out to the extremities. And, um, you know, we're experiencing that kind of hyperactivation. Now, in our modern life, are the threats that we face are not as, are not this one moment physical thing, like seeing a saber-toothed tiger. You know, mm-hmm. the threats we have in terms of our, you know, economic or, or relational health or our, you know, work-life balance. Those are things that can go on for quite a while. And so in our modern life, that um, HPA access can be overactivated chronically. And that leads to insomnia or uh, tight shoulders or, um, you know, butterflies in the stomach and, and that kind of unease or, or dis-ease within our body, which we try to self-medicate using um, food or um, technology or overwork or all other kind of things. And actually when we return to the, these sort of basic mind-body practices, it helps us to reset the system. So that's in a short form, you know, how, how things are playing out between the physical and that kind of mind, emotion, spirit.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. So it starts with that immediate sort of what is my kind of psychological experience of this and yeah. how that then gets translated and filtered through the body.
2: Yes. So the information is coming up from from the body um, through the limbic system uh, to the brain. And, you know, the brain is is then kind of parsing things out, you know, based on the way that we judge this. You know, is this my old friend or is this my algebra teacher, for instance? You know, then Mm -hmm. that sets the um, endocrine system into motion. Well, the, the information goes down to the gut but then what's interesting is it comes back up from the gut to the brain again. So it's the, the the mind and the body are reinforcing each other.
1: Well, and so is where the psychology kind of, where the psychology comes in here is that, oh, there's my old algebra teacher, right? You have this initial reaction of, oh, I failed algebra. This person might think I'm an idiot or whatever it is. And then you you go, the psychology, I think, tell me I might be totally wrong here, goes to wait. That was my algebra teacher. That was eighth grade. This is no longer the the experience that I have of myself. So I don't need to disrupt my body in this way.
2: Yeah, ideally we do have, we are able to take our um, thoughts with a grain of salt. You know, hopefully we don't believe everything we think. You know, we can check out that initial reaction if we get startled, that, um, there's research that shows that whatever that, that first emotion is, it lasts only six seconds, just six seconds. And mm-hmm. so after that is what we are um, perpetuating, basically. You know, what, what kind of judgment did we form? Did we um, completely uh, identify with that original response, you know, to the point where we've got a, a whole story in our mind? Or on the other hand, did we say, yeah, that was, that was a long time ago. We're such different people now. I'm really glad to see her. Um, it's been a while. You know, that's just as, as equally possible. And that completely shifts um, the parameters. Well,
1: that's my the- gosh, that shifts everything, right? I mean, that shifts. If you think about that one little thought and how you shift it, it changes your entire physiological response to that. Right. It, it, it completely de-escalates it.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, And we all have that, you know, we all have that potential. That's the the best healing work ever, which is um, don't believe everything you think. But on the other hand, if you do get into something that, you know, that feels a little bit um, touchy, then, um, you know, the next thing is that there are ways, um, there are ways to work with that, you know, whether it's something that is um, a kind of spiritual distress or, if it's something that's happening in the body. And again, we see that very often a lot of deep interplay between these. The research that there has come out on adverse childhood experience, for instance, that when people have had this early life experience of um, you know, loss or separation or you know something else that felt a bit neglectful, then that makes them more predisposed to have uh, certain classifications of physical illness. Mm. And, and so, they, because things kind of snowballed um, within the But even if we're in that place, you know, where maybe our physical body isn't exactly where we would like it to be, or our, our um, relationships, you know, the relationships are also based on that early life experience. You know, all of those relational patterns, as you know, were formed in those first two years before the prefrontal cortex is online. So all of that unconscious material is governing, you know, the way that we fall in love or the way that we relate to ourselves now. Mm-hmm. And also, it's possible to, to use some of these practices to do a kind of reboot.
1: Well, and that's, you talk a little bit in the book about attachment theory. And I know you talk about um Daniel. Daniel Siegel. Daniel Siegel. Thank you. I always want to say Daniel Stern. Um, Daniel Siegel, who I actually sat at a table with 20 years ago. At He was speaking at a event that I was I was on um, for where I did my internship. And I was my mouth was like on the floor at what he was saying. I just think he is such a phenomenal speaker and the work that he's done is so amazing around mirror neurons and I mean everything that he's done but can you explain how you how you incorporate some of these practices into shifting those 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 early childhood experiences or those early attachment experiences
0: Sure.
2: Well, I mean, I think one common thing that people experience, you know, if they've had some early life insecure attachment, is that it's really hard for them to open up to the abundance of love that's available in the here and now, you know, because there's um, some kind of core belief that um, there's a scarcity or or that the love could be truncated at any time. And so one of the first basic practices um, that has been adopted actually by Lama John McCransky, who is um, a professor with the Department of Comparative Theology at Boston College. Uh, That is adopted from traditional Tibetan practice of, of devotion. And so within this, this is something that anyone can do is just taking a moment to envision all of these people who from the very beginning of our lives have carried a wish for our well-being, you know, our brothers, mm-hmm. sisters, our parents or grandparents, our friends, and also those people like His Holiness the Dalai Lama or um, Bishop Tutu who carry a wish of well-being for everyone. So just taking a moment to envision their bright faces, and really genuinely feel and sense that love flowing forth from them like a brilliant light, filling our heart. You know, opening the heart, expanding it, awakening it. So then our heart itself is like a golden life-giving sun. And that light um, goes to renew every cell of the body. You know, all the way nourishing the bone marrow, shimmering through the cells of the skin. And we bask in that. And we practice fully receiving that because that's, that's the way that life is. And then out of that, of course, having received so much blessing, um, we then have an opportunity. You know, we can sit there and we can envision sending that out to the people that we care for, sending that out to wherever in the world it's most needed. And so that's kind of restoring people's place in the family of things.
1: Hmm. It's so beautiful. And it seems so simple. Like this is what always I think is so hard for people is these practices seem so simple. It seems like, is that going to be enough? Yeah, well, I
2: that's, we have a a few different practices in the book, thankfully, you know, but that's, that's one of the baseline. um, That that one is like a Swiss army knife for me. It it just Mm. about um, cures everything. But we can also look at the work that's been adopted from Buddhist tradition by um, Peter Levine and his somatic experiencing work. And so So there's another example of where these traditional Buddhist practices have been very effectively secularized.
1: So for people who don't know, can you just explain, we've talked about it a little bit, but Peter Levine's work and somatic experiences.
2: So Peter Levine has done this really groundbreaking work in helping to heal trauma working through the body. You know, what's been found is that when people have PTSD, for instance, very often there are um, pharmaceuticals like floxetine that have been um, prescribed, but the floxetine only works when it's being prescribed. When people go off uh, the medicine, then the PTSD returns. Hmm. So um, there are certain processes like um, desensitization where people would be bringing up the emotions and the experience and hopefully to, um, you know, uh, just move through it. But actually there are people who had their experiences in childhood for whom those memories are not really clear. Mm-hmm. Those, those um, therapies might not be tolerable or they might not be effective. Mm-hmm. And with EMDR as well, because yeah. the um, really is based on being able to tap into that original imprint, you know, if it's really early life then that imprint is is maybe not accessible, or again, it might not be tolerable. So the nice thing about somatic experiencing is that it just works directly with the body. The limbic system, um, which um, includes the amygdala, you know, that's where we have that experience of um, uh, that fear or emotional imprint that we can't really touch consciously. You know, there's that experience of I know something, but I can't quite say it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's the kind of experience of um, the amygdala. There are all kinds of things that we know in a sort of tacit, unconscious way. And so somatic experiencing works through that system, through the body's knowing. And one of, one of the effective ways that he's done that really is it's so simple. It's one of the practices he encourages is this sort of self hug where we place one hand, left hand on the right shoulder, a right hand over the left, uh, under the left arm. And then actually in, in this um, way adapted from Tibetan Buddhism, making this voo sound, there's a low vibration mm-hmm. sound deep in the gut, like voo. And what that does physiologically is it increases the amount of um, energy and, and information coming from the limbic system back up to the brain. Hmm. So, if, where, you know, before, you know, the brain was sending the signals to the body, you know, which were sending it into a freeze response or um, kind of fear loop. Uh, what this does is it breaks the loop because now there's something else going on. Mm. You know, and so that helps people cut through all kinds of anxiety. Pretty. So
1: happy. they don't necessarily like as you're speaking. It I recall what Daniel Siegel said so early is that just think about like pre-verbal memories as you had the experience, so you have to have some memory of it. You just didn't have the verbal language to make sense of that memory. So where did it go? It had to go somewhere. It's not gone. Right, it's stored in your brain or your body or whatnot. But do you need to have the experience in your body of remembering that memory, or no? You can just know that you have an experience in your body, or that's where you hold disease and heal it that way.
2: Right, but people are having um, an emotional experience, you know, this emotional imprint has come up, they might not know where that's from. And the the great thing is, that using the somatic um, practices, we don't need to know where it's from. You know, mm-hmm. if we know, that's great. If we don't, that's fine, because it's just tapping directly body to body. Um, so, it's it's it's
1: the, it's the right medicine for that situation. Mm-hmm. So, you talk in the book about the integration of all the various entities. What does that integration look like? like what would that look like to be whole? or fully uh, integrated?
2: Well, I think that's a journey. It's, it's like the horizon, there's always farther to go. You know, it's like the looking at the leaves right now here in San Francisco. You know, the spring has come and the leaves are these different shades of green, but they're always uh, changing the shade of green. They're always in a state of becoming. And so in that same way, I think wholeness or um, integration is really a continual state of becoming a horizon. Mm. Um, and I can say some of the, some of the processes really um, that point to that state and help to achieve it are, you know, being in a place of flow in our lives, you know, being in a place of connection with our own emotional experience. hmm um, you know, being able to um, breathe through our body, feel at home in our body. And out of that, being able to achieve a real intimacy with the people that we care about and um, carry, you know, that sense of kindness or connection to the people whom we're just meeting. Mm-hmm. Be- because um, I, one of one of the implications of this is that Um, The mind is not just up here in the head. The mind is an embodied and emergent relational process that as we see each other, we're coming into being. Mm. And so uh, another person's well-being and our well-being um, are mutually Mm -hmm.
1: supportive.
2: That we can't get happiness just from this isolated um, cranial brain self.
1: Well, and, and then when you think of consciousness in the way of we are all universally connected and one, yeah, it makes perfect sense.
2: Well, it's Earth Day, right? So that's the natural place to go. It that is we, Earth Day. Yeah, that we're all one body. All of those beings in us are one body, and our well-being depends on them and mm-hmm. theirs on us. Mm-hmm. So then out of that, you know, empathy arises, and that empathy is the place of um, not only our own wellness, but also the ground for an ethics of wellness. Hmm. Because we're all wired the same way. We all depend upon that kindness and empathy from the very beginning of our life. Even if we have no religious uh, background whatsoever, we've already experienced the spirituality of people caring for us when we were too young to care for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then that, Um, understanding of mutuality um, through our um, healthy connection provides the basis for our ongoing connection to our body and our connection to each other.
1: So what do you think we lose when we westernize these experiences? Um, Well, it's, I, I would say that
2: our, our our Western way of knowing is very often reductionistic. And so we, we're we hoping, right, to isolate out these little bits like mindfulness. Mm-hmm. What happens when you isolate mindfulness out of, you know, the other nourishing bits is sometimes you end up with um, a, a, a place where people are practicing meditation, but they don't have a sense of the ethics involved. Um, Meaning it, what? Well, for instance, um, you know the the that great multinational company Monsanto, you know mm-hmm. they went through a sort of like mindfulness classes, but there might have been something missing because <laughs> Monsanto's products have not, you know, brought about wellness and wholeness for everybody. That that would that's one example. Or what can happen is that we have um, you know a good mental understanding. You know, or we begin to tap into this wholeness of the body. But we're as human beings really hungry for ritual. You know, ritual is a, a embodied narrative. It's our way of making meaning, and and it's not just cognitive. You know, but it's really comes through the senses. Hmm. That's that's the way that we're wired. That these the parts of the brain that are connected to um the senses. Are also connected to those you know, deep core um, memories and you know, the sense of self. So that if we're able to convey this sense of wholeness and wellness through um, embodied connection, you know, through a visualization, through music, what that is doing is it's tapping into the brain's capacity for vertical integration. You know, according to Dan Siegel and other people who are doing the relational neurology part, um, music, uh, dance, rhythm, poetry, um, these are some of the strongest pathways to making connection between uh, the body and the mind. Hmm. And all of these are at play in good
1: ritual interpersonal neurobiology that is what it was is called i was like what is it called that he does (laughs) this just triggered it for me oh thank you so can you you talk about rituals can you walk us through them because i think each one was so important um and you started with setting intention
2: yes so of course uh, the intention needs to be clear um that, you know, that we can't, you know, as healers, you know, the first thing is, you know, how is the self as instrument doing, you know, if we're going to be um, conscious and intentional, you know, it's, it starts from the moment before we open the door, it starts perhaps the, the moment that we wake up in the morning, that mm-hmm. the healers that I interviewed, they would start the day with this intention um, to be a vehicle for healing, you know, using a traditional uh, Tibetan Buddhist medicine Buddha uh, visualization practice. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, as we sort of go into the world, and and um, that quality of mindfulness is going to help um, the healing work to happen. First and foremost, as um, uh, what Dr. Wangmo said, the healer. The doctor has to be mindful. If you're checking someone's pulse, or if you are, you know, kind of observing their relational life, mindfulness. So then out of that mindfulness, we create space within so that what we hear, we truly hear as a, as a clinician, or as a, as a therapist. And then through that creating space inside, it's possible to create that really healthy, Um, relational space. And actually, Dan Siegel also writes about this, um, you know, the different stages, where we begin uh, with another person by matching, you know, sort of like mind to mind. And then maybe it kind of comes drops in that we're connecting emotionally. And then we're connecting somatically, you know, we can feel within our body, the state of another person, because our own neural wiring is in a good place. And um, then out of that, really, the the connection is what he calls interoception. And so that's that felt sense.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: as we do that, um, that's creating sacred space where the person knows they're being seen in a true way, in an authentic way. Mm -hmm. That's what brings about the healing, (laughs) That, that quality of connection. And why? I mean, we can look at this even physiologically and say if, if people feel disconnected, you know, if they feel unseen, unwitnessed, um, then they're more likely to experience a kind of loneliness and depression while they're doing their physical healing, for instance, in the hospital. I see that. And when if people are depressed, then their immune system is not going to be functioning as well. The mm-hmm. you know, healing process is just not going to be as vigorous, and it only makes sense to use all the tools at our disposal.
1: Well, and and for anybody listening who thinks you know therapy is just talking, <laughs> you just described all of the things. And as you were going through it, I'm thinking in my head, okay, yes, yeah. I mean, you put words to it in a way that I had never really thought about it before. But that's exactly what happens. And I think, you know, people have often said to me, have you been in therapy or were you in therapy? And I was, I've talked about this before. I was in therapy for 17 years. I still work with a healer because if I am not, I feel like if I am not clear, if I am not attuned, if I am not uh, aware of what is stirring for me, then I cannot hold space for somebody else to un- un cover and reveal what is difficult for them yes
2: that's it and so by creating the sacred space within them we're able to create space um, together with the other person for attunement and then out of that you know um, there are ways in which we can kind of evoke the sacred and the the numinous and and depending on the, the patient's own map of that uh, we can help them uh, to make meaning of things, and then what that is, what's going on within the, the vessel of that therapeutic relationship is then they're being reconnected to their community. You know, every one of their relationships becomes a healing relationship. Mhm.
1: Mhm. Yeah, and and I've had that experience too, where people have said to me, "You helped me, but in helping me, you also helped." this person, and that person, and that person, and that person, and that person, and then the trickle effect. And that's, I don't normally think of that, but it's so, it's so incredibly powerful. Yeah, because it is that notion of like, to heal one person, you heal the world.
2: That's it. That's true. That's, there's always that interconnection between the individual and the collective healing. And also, what, what inevitably happens, I would say personally, is that as we work on um, the healing of another, we're also working on ourselves, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. which is beautiful. And um, within this, there's a change of um, consciousness mm. that you know the the healer's consciousness is is being um, is serving you know as as a vehicle for um, the healing, but also ultimately the client's. Um, Consciousness also shifts. Mm -hmm. You you don't solve the problem at the level that it was created.
1: Right. And so I have two thoughts on on that. One, when people ask, like, who's the best therapist? The answer is it's the best person for you because the relationship is really, and there's been research on this, the relationship is where the healing happens. Definitely. And what was my other thought that you just said? Um, It will come back to me. I have to. This is why I need to write things down. I'm getting old and I need to write things down. Uh, One other question before we wrap up. Can you talk about the five elements in healing? Yeah.
2: Yeah. The five elements. So, um, you know, our body is made out of the five elements. It's, you know, our body is nature. Um, And these elements can be understood to represent different. parts of our human experience. You know, for instance, water is usually associated with the emotions. Hmm. But Water uh, in the um, Tibetan uh, five element theory is also associated with confidence. You know, if you have healthy water, then um, the, the confidence is in place. Or um, fire, you know, fire is connected with our ability to take action, you know, to assert ourselves, to move. Um, earth, you know, Earth is you know our own groundedness and centeredness, you know, and and um, you know the air or space is, is a quality of mind, uh, you know, keep it, keeping keeping a mind that is that is clear like space. Mm-hmm. And so, w- what happens within this work, uh, the traditional work, is that as part of the assessment, the um, the teacher or the healer can can see where an element is missing and bring it back. And that's important that all, whether it's within um, like a Tibetan system where people can use like certain sounds from uh, the salon uh, practices or within uh, Buddhist Qigong. Also, there are correspondences between the elements as they're identified in Chinese medicine and the movements and sounds that
1: we can make to restore balance. So the notion is that if any of these are not there or they're missing, then you're not fully in alignment.
2: Yes, it's it's a really good map for seeing where things um, will optimally be, and then um, what might what might need help. And and so these practices can be a way of um, strengthening, or and helping us to reconnect. And you
1: how, know, one of
2: the The simple ones that I do with people sometimes, if I notice, for instance, that they have um, a lot of air, but not enough earth, you know, that as a therapist, you know, sometimes people are ungrounded. And so then I'll, I'll emphasize, you know, the Qigong movements that throw that root, a tap root deep into the ground, you know, and just feeling that connection we have to our families and our communities and everything that heals us at our root. Whereas for someone else, if they're like depressed or, a kind of um, don't have, you know, um, agency or activity. What I might do is emphasize the big movements that connect with a sense of liberation or a sense of um, fire Hmm. or a sense of this big space, like the big blue sky that holds Mm -hmm. it. So if someone
1: is feeling like their self-esteem is, is, you know, they're feeling like they don't have a lot of self-worth or their self-esteem is low. Do you then, like, would a prescription to that be to go be near natural water and spend time listening to it and being in that? Yeah, Um, if the the emotions are, um, you know,
2: basically needing a, a kind of a cleansing and healing, then I find uh, giving people uh, something to do around water, you know, very intentionally connecting with the element of water and letting their own water flow is a really good prescription. You know, it's it's never like one size fits all. um, But, you know, there are a lot of um, kind of tried and true things that we can fall back on.
1: Is there... If there is an element that you feel like most sort of attracted to, does that say something about you or is there any I think it often
2: does, and it often shows up in people's relationships right because we see the complementary balance you know if, if someone one person is very grounded but they feel like their life gets boring, they might invite in this real adventurous spirit mm. you know who has like a lot of fire or is or um you know, is out like surprising them. You know, and and maybe has a lot of movement and air. Um, but on the other hand, if someone someone else might have um, a lot of fire, but they might really look for earth. You know, because of that experience they have. Well, I'm, I'm with this person. That's really stabilizing for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to to um, toast the bread in the morning. Mm-hmm. I'm not the I'm not the cook. I'm not the toaster. Yeah, and and so you know, within our own lives, we can look and see at this time what's the element that's going to be the most complementary. And and of course, sometimes it happens. We might be in in such a pattern that we don't see that we need fire or we need earth,
1: um, but sometimes we do. Hmm. Wow. Well, this is fascinating. I feel like I could talk to you for like another hour, um, okay. but. Thank you so much, ji If people want to find you or the book, where can they do that? The website is mountainpath.org.
2: So mountain, like the big mountains, and then p-a-t-h dot o-r-g.
1: Great. And all of that will be in my show notes as well. Thank you so much for your time today. The pleasure is absolutely mine. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts, and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well.